Okay, so any questions from last time? I remember testing the parachutes and having failure after failure and finally getting them to work, but then wondering if our testing was going to be good enough for Mars. And then finally, when the parachutes opened on Mars and the landers landed and stuff, it was an incredible relief. And then all that work we had done and actually and come out with a parachute that was going to be strong enough. Now it's time to test another parachute, a bigger parachute, and a bigger thing on Mars. So we're going to call Mars so we're going to do an example today where we go through the Mars Pathfinder mission and we look at the deceleration of this spacecraft as it approached Mars. So I just show that uh, little video there on the, the intro screen here to get you interested in what we'll be doing later in the class. Okay, but um, as I was saying before that started playing, uh, I'll address any questions you have from last time if there are any. Yeah. What's the, the, it's Beiersdorf, that's, that's my last name. So it's printed on the syllabus, and it's also, I think, on my, uh, on the webpage that has a link to Mastering Physics, it should list that. Uh-huh. Uh, did anybody else have trouble registering? Did anybody have success registering? I know some people did. Okay. Um, try the spelling. Uh, check, double check the spelling. Also, you can come see me in office hours after class. We can try it. Try it together. Any other questions? So the first assignment is due on Sunday. So it's coming up rather quickly. So we do need to, uh, you do want to straighten that out if you're having trouble registering. Okay, we will talk a little bit more about vectors today. We talked about adding and subtracting vectors last time. So we'll introduce multiplication of vectors today. Um, that's from chapter one in the textbook. And then we'll move on and we'll start doing some physics, which is chapter two in the textbook, which is 1D kinematics. Uh, I think the textbook uses the term kinematics. That just means motion, 1D motion. So 1D is one-dimensional. Um, later on, we'll talk about two-dimensional and three-dimensional motion. But we'll start with uh, one-dimensional. And we'll talk about three parameters that we're going to use a lot, displacement, velocity, and acceleration. So I'll wait to define those until we, we get to doing this. And we'll find that there's ways we can express these quantities using averages, and there's ways we can express them using calculus. Okay, so um, this course uses calculus. Um, some of you will be following along in your math courses. Some of you have already taken the calculus. I'll always try to motivate where the calculus comes from using averages and finite, finite value expressions as well. Um, but for those of you that have, have had the calculus, I want to present that so you can understand why the math you're taking is useful. And we'll do a bunch of example problems. So that's the plan today. So we'll start with vectors. Vectors, remember, are quantities that have what? A magnitude and a direction. So what's an example of a physical quantity that has a magnitude and a direction? Velocity is one. Acceleration is another. I'm sorry? Force. Force is another. Yeah, so we went through these last time. We'll talk about some of them today. Those are all vectors because they have a direction associated with them. So we use arrows to represent vectors. So, of course, the arrow has a direction associated with it, and that's going to give the direction of the, the physical quantity. And then the length of the arrow will make proportional to the magnitude of the physical quantity. So something that has a very large force acting on it will represent by a long vector. Something that has a very small force acting on it will represent that force by a small vector. 
And there are times where we're going to need to add vectors. Sometimes we're going to need to subtract them. And there will be times where we need to multiply them. So there are two ways to multiply vectors. They're called the dot product and the cross product. We'll present the dot product first. It's called the dot product because the symbol that we use to denote the multiplication is a dot. If we say vector A dotted with vector B, that's a specific type of multiplication. It's called the dot product. It's also called the scalar product because its value is defined as AB cosine phi. So here's my vectors, A and B. In this little diagram, we've shown the angle between them as being phi. That's the Greek letter phi. We're going to do a lot of things with Greek letters in this class. So if, it's, if you see a symbol that's unfamiliar to you, just ask me. I've been doing this long enough that sometimes I forget that um, some of these symbols are being introduced for the first time. So that's the Greek letter phi. By the way, if you have to type that into Mastering Physics, that's how you do it. Slash PHI. So if phi is the angle between vector A and B, then the dot product of A and B is equal to AB cosine phi. What does it mean that this letter A has an arrow over it? That's a vector. So what does it mean that this letter A does not have an arrow over it? What is it then? It's the magnitude. So it's like the length of A, okay, with, with, without considering the direction. So it's saying A dot B is proportional to the length of vector A, and it's proportional to the length of vector B, and it depends on the angle between them. Okay, so from this definition, when is the dot product of two vectors a maximum? When the angle between them is what? Well, if it's 180 degrees, they're in opposite directions. Phi would be 180. What's cosine of 180? Minus one. So the mag. So this quantity would have a. You have a positive value here, a positive value here, and a minus one there. If phi is zero, then cosine phi is one. Okay, and this quantity is as large as it can be. So. There's vectors A and B, and the angle between them. Can you see that in the back? Okay, so it will be useful to consider this term B times cosine phi. Let's, let's group that together and see if we can assign some physical significance to that. Um, I can. maybe rotate this drawing a little bit 
so that A is pointing horizontally. And the reason I might do that is then I can say A is pointing in the x direction. Okay, I could have just as easily said the x direction is defined to be in the direction A is pointing, but we're probably more used to having x pointing to the right. So let me, let me do that. Let me rotate the diagram so that A is pointing in the x direction. And then I can say that um, these vectors have components, x and y components. We talked about this last time. Um, the x component of vector A is the amount of vector A pointing in the x direction. How much of vector A is pointing in the x direction? All of it. Right, so let's see. How would I express that? What's the, what is, how do I write all of it? All of vector A. Just, just A, the magnitude of A. So the component in the x direction has a magnitude that's equal to vector A. What's the magnitude of the y component of vector A? That's 0. What about B? Let's write vector B in terms of its components. And to do that, it'll be useful to look at our diagram, draw what those components look like. So I can draw a triangle where B is the hypotenuse and the legs are along X and Y. And now the leg that's along X, I'll call B sub X. The leg that's along Y, I'll call B sub Y. And recall that this angle is phi. That was the angle between A and B. And now we can say what bx and by are using some trigonometry. What's bx? b cosine phi. And that means by is b sine phi. Okay, so my dot product is defined as a dot b is equal to a b cosine phi. And now this term b cosine phi is bx. And for what it's worth, a right here is ax. So what this is telling me is this is the amount of vector b that's pointing along a. So I'm multiplying the amount of vector b that points along a times vector a. So if the two vectors are parallel, that's when the dot product will be the largest. When would the dot product be 0? If they're 90 degrees apart. If, if they're 90 degrees apart, then there'd be no component of B pointing along A. Okay, so we can also write the dot product in terms of components. The component of 
a that's along x times the component of b that's along x, plus the component of a along y times the component of b that's along y. And if we have three-dimensional vectors, we can add a term for the z direction. So we have two different ways of calculating the dot product. And we can look at these definitions, particularly this one, and we can use it to express the angle between two vectors. If we just solve this expression here for cosine phi, we can say the angle between two vectors is their dot product divided by the product of the magnitudes. And we can calculate the dot product from the components if we have them. And it gives you a way to relate the vectors. If you're given the components of a vector, this expression lets you find the angle between them. Yes? Right here? So this, as it's written, I just told you was the definition of the dot product. Okay, so I'm not deriving that or motivating its explanation. But it's useful in physics quite frequently to talk about the amount of one vector that's pointing in the direction of another. Okay, so an example of an instance where this is important is like a sailboat. Right, a sailboat gets pushed along by the wind. And in a very simple model of sailing, it's the amount of the wind pushing it forward that contributes to its motion. Right, if the wind is pushing sideways, it's not going to cause it to move forward. If you're a sailor, you may take argument with that, because the way that sails work is a little bit more sophisticated than just being pushed by the wind, but we'll, we'll neglect that for now. So if the wind is pushing sideways, that's not going to cause the boat to move forward. Right? But if the wind is pushing along the direction, that will cause the boat to move. So how much work is done by the wind, it depends not only on how strong the wind is, it also depends on how far it pushes the boat. And it depends on which direction the wind is blowing. If the wind is not blowing in the direction of the boat, that the boat's moving, it's not going to do any work. It's not going to accelerate the boat. So this is an example of a situation in physics that requires a dot product. The amount of the force from the wind pushing the boat forward is what's responsible for doing work on the boat. And so we could write that as F dot X. So F in this case would be the force of the wind and X would be the direction of motion. Notice that's, an, that's a hat, X hat. What does that mean? Let me ask Raymond. Is Raymond here? Okay. Do you remember what a hat means on the top of a symbol? Okay. What does an arrow mean on the top? Okay, right. So, can I, does anybody remember what the hat means? Yes. It's a unit vector. So this is a vector as well. And how long is that vector? What's its magnitude? One. So it's just a direction. So this f dot x means 
the component of the force that points in the direction of, of x, in the direction of motion. That's the component of the force that pushes the boat along. And what if we don't use a unit vector, but we use actually the displacement vector? So the vector x would represent how far the boat has moved. It has a direction. It's moved in a certain direction. And it has a magnitude, because it's moved a certain number of meters. Okay, So this would tell me the component of the force in the direction of motion times how far it moved. And we'll see later on in chapter 6 that that's the amount of work done by the, by the wind. Okay, so to make this quantitative, in order to do an example with numbers, let's say the force is 100 newtons. A newton is our unit of force in the SI system. A newton, by the way, um, One newton is, let me see if I, so two pounds is about 10 newtons. So a newton is about five pounds of force. So a force of 100 newtons pushes about 30 meters. And the angle between those vectors is 30 degrees. What is f dot x? Let's figure that out. So I have a rule for calculating the dot product of two vectors. The rule uses a, b, and phi. And I have 100 newtons, 30 meters, and 30 degrees. So I need to make some substitutions here. So I'm going to say a, that's my vector f, yeah. And, th and it has a magnitude of 100. So I'll plug in 100. Not just 100, 100 newtons. So vector b, that's the second vector. That's x. So let me write that as x over here. And I know its magnitude is 30 meters. So let me write that in. It's important that I write in the units. If I don't write in the units, this is not representing what's going on in the problem. Okay, And we'll see in just a second why it's important to write in the units. I'm going to have to plug in cosine of phi. And what is phi in this example? 30 degrees. So phi was the angle between the vectors. And 30 degrees is the angle between the vectors. Sometimes in the problem, you'll be given angles other than the ones that are used in the definition. So we just have to make sure that this 30 degrees actually corresponds to what this phi represents. And it does. So I can plug in 30 degrees. And then I can evaluate this. you type this into your calculator and you do it right, you should get 2,580 newtons times meters. 
Okay, so when you multiply the numbers together, you get 2580. When you multiply the units together, you get a newton times a meter. And we talked last time about fundamental units and secondary units. A secondary unit is one that comes from or depends on other quantities. One newton times one meter we call a joule. We'll talk about that in chapter six. Right now we're doing an example where the physics is a little bit beyond what we've covered, um, but we're just trying to, to show how these vectors are going to be important. Um, but when we do talk about units and work, we'll learn that a joule is equal to a newton times a meter, and a joule is a unit of work. And that tells us that what we've calculated is a work. It's the amount of work that the, work that the wind did on the boat. And if we didn't include the units, it wouldn't be obvious from this final expression what we've calculated. If we don't know what this formula represents, when we get to the end, we wouldn't know what we've calculated. So it's valuable to keep track of the units all the way through. OK, that's the dot product of vectors. We'll talk about this more when we do it later on in other chapters. Questions? Just like for clarification. So the, the point that I said was to see how much work the sub-load's on, or did you say how much? Well, the reason you'd probably be asked a question I, like I this would be to find out how much work is done. Conceptually, yeah. this particular dot product Turns on, later on we'll learn that the definition of work is the force done on an object dotted with the distance the object has moved, dotted with the displacement. So what we've calculated here is the work done by the, the wind. Okay. Any other questions? Let's take a brief look at the cross product, which is the other way vectors can be multiplied. We'll use the cross product in chapter uh, 9. And I just want to mention it here because it's covered in your book in Chapter 1. We're actually going to go through a lot more examples and talk about it more specifically when we need it in Chapter 9. If I introduce it all now, I think it just becomes too much too fast. Um, but just so you know what the book is, is talking about, um, cross product is written as A cross B. So instead of a dot meaning multiplication, here we have a, an X, a cross symbol. And like the dot product, the definition of the cross product is that it has a magnitude equal to a times b times some function of that angle between the vectors. In this case, it's sine of the angle between them. So a dot b was a b cosine phi. a cross b is a b sine phi. So if A dotted with B is the amount of A in the direction of B, A cross with B is the amount of A perpendicular to B. So the dot product of two vectors measures how parallel they are. The cross product measures how perpendicular they are, if you like.
And just a couple comments about this. Unlike the dot product, the cross product is a vector. This quantity here gives its magnitude. It also has a direction. Yeah? The dot product is a scalar. When you dot two vectors together, you get a number. When you cross two vectors together, you get another vector. Okay. And this diagram here shows how these vectors relate. A cross B gives you a vector that's perpendicular to A and B. And we use something called the right-hand rule, where you take your right hand. If you're doing A cross B, you point your right hand fingers in the direction of the first vector. You bend them into the direction of the second vector, and your thumb is pointing in the direction of the cross product. And if you'll note, B cross A points in the opposite direction. So A cross B is not the same thing as B cross A. They point in opposite directions. So the order in which you multiply these vectors matters. Yes? What this is saying, the absolute value of a vector, or this notation that we associate with absolute value, is another way of saying the magnitude. So this is saying the length of vector A cross B is that the direction is given by the right-hand rule. If I didn't have this there, then this statement wouldn't be true, because it would be saying this vector over here equals this, but this isn't a vector. That's just a scalar. It doesn't have a direction. Okay, so we're going to come back to this um, in later chapters. I'm not going to go over it any more than that right now. Uh, so let's do some examples for a couple of vectors. We'll use the same vectors for three or four examples. Let's take vector A and B as drawn here. Let's first talk about their components. Um, if we add them up, A plus B, and here's an example where I'm using boldface to denote vectors. So vectors are usually either written in boldface or with an arrow above them. Okay, so vector A plus vector B. Um, first, let's work out what that looks like. If you're taking notes or doing this on your paper, um, try to work out what vector A plus B looks like. If you're doing this on your head, just think about what those vectors should look like when they add up. Any method you want to do it, um, see if you can visualize what vector A plus B looks like. Yeah, so let me, let me do this graphically first. So graphically we say that um, we use what's called the tip-to-tail method. If we're going to add A and B, we'll start at the, at the origin here, at the base of vector A, the tail of vector A, and we'll go to the tip. And then from that point, 
we'll draw vector b. So vector b was drawn right here, but it's the same vector if I draw it up here. Right? It's still going to have the same length and the same direction, even if I move it to a different point on my diagram. So I can draw a vector b up here. And then the tip-to-tail method says if we start here, and we follow along ve- vector a, and from there we follow along vector b, the point that we end up at is where vector a plus b goes to. So we've lined up the tips and the tails of the vectors that we're summing. And then from the tail of the first vector to the tip of the last, that's the sum. So you should have gotten a sum that looks something like this. It's pointing up and to the right. Okay, so without working out any of the numbers, what can you say about the components, the x and y components of vector c? Let's see. Daryl? Is Daryl here? Daryl cool? How about uh, Chris Ling? Chris. Uh, what can you say about the x component of vector a plus b? Okay, it points along the positive x-axis. Good. Uh, so we could have choice two, three, uh, two, four, or five could be possible answers to this question. And let's see, uh, Gennaro, what can you say about the y component of vector c, the sum of a and b? Is it pointing more up or more down? Okay, so up, would would that be positive y or negative y? Positive Positive y. So it should be positive. So positive y means, um, positive x, positive y could be choice 2 or choice 4. So if we narrow it down to choice 2 or 4, which one's more likely? 2. Yeah, it looks from my diagram like the y component is smaller than the x component. Right, so choice two seems more likely. Of course, you can work out the numbers and figure it out exactly. So, good job. Let's see if we can find A dotted with B. Let's do this. Let's do this two different ways, since we're doing this for the first time. Um, two definitions for the dot product. So, in order to use the first definition. We need to know the length of A, the length of B, and the angle between them. We're given all of that. So it's probably going to be the easiest way to do this. So I can just read these off in the diagram. A is 40 meters long. 
B is 20 meters long. And the angle between them is 37, right? Okay, good. The angle between them is not what's drawn in the diagram. Right? Phi in this definition is the angle between the vectors, and that's not what's shown here. This angle right here, plus 37 degrees, has to be 180. So this angle has to be 143. If I work that out, I get minus 640 meters squared. So the minus sign comes from cosine of a number that's greater than 90 degrees. The 640 comes from 40 times 20 times the cosine. What if I wanted to use this form? I'd need to know the components of A and B. Right, so let me, let me write what those would look like. What's the x component of A? Alexander? Okay, that's good. One thing's missing, though. Daniel? Oh. Yes? Uh, Alexander? Can you explain how you got that? Well, I drew a triangle, and then that's the angle, and then the sine is the adjacent over the hypotenuse. And then you just move it around using the algebra. So a triangle that looks something like that. Uh, AX is sine because the X component of A, if we, if we draw a triangle like this that goes up along Y and then over along X, the angle 37 degrees is the angle between, is this angle right here. Sine of that angle is the opposite, which is a sub x, over the hypotenuse. The reason you might think it's cosine is because in our definitions that we had for calculating um, components of angles, we always define the angle with respect to the x-axis, not with respect to the y-axis. So what we're being presented with in the problem is not the same form as what some of our uh, definitions had. Let's see. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there's different ways of getting it. The result should be the same. Then, right? Where was I? Um, I was about to ask. 
Daniel? Daniel Pacheco? Okay, what about the Y component? Well, we're going to look for the Y component of vector A. So we don't need to worry about vector B. So on the graph, if I were to draw that, here I've drawn a triangle. Which leg of the triangle or which side of the triangle is the Y component? Okay, good. So this angle here is 37 degrees. Is this given by hypotenuse times sine or times cosine? Cosine? Okay. So we get 40 meters times cosine of 37 degrees. And then we can do the same thing for B. So, Xing? Xing say? Yeah. What is uh, B sub X? B sub X is zero. Good. Why is it zero? Okay, B is pointing vertically, so there's no horizontal component. There's no X component. So what is the Y component, Satvir? Satvir here? Kevin Tang? Kevin? Minus 20, what? Uh, meters. Okay, so once we have the components, we could plug them into this formula, multiply them together, we should get the same, same value. Yes? You get that? Oh, my bag? That works too. Can you see it now? Okay, so that's an introduction to the ways we manipulate vectors. Uh, we'll talk about it more when we start to do physics that requires us use these dot products and cross products. What I want to do now is start to introduce some physics. Start to talk about the three quantities that define the motion of an object. Okay, the three quantities that define the motion of a rigid object that's not rotating. We call this translational motion. Okay, so just as an aside, um, objects like this piece of paper can move around and the whole purpose of Physics 50 is to be able to describe how they move, essentially. It's mechanics. It's, it's how things, mechanical things move around. Um, and there's sort of three ways that this type of an object can move. One we call translation. That is, its center of mass can move. Okay, so the whole thing can, can go wherever. And that's, you can just describe its position, okay, where it is, and how that position is changing as a function of time. 
That will describe how its center of mass moves around. That describes its, its uh, translation. What are, what's another way that this object can move? Okay, so rotation. Okay, so rotation is the key word there. It can rotate about its center of mass. Okay, so the, the thing can move around without sort of changing its position, but it's still moving, right? So that's rotation. And of course, you can have both things happening at the same time. There's one other reason I chose, there's one other type of motion, and it's the reason I chose a piece of paper as opposed to my computer or a block or a piece of chalk. Yeah, it can fold. We call it uh, deformation or, or strain. So you can have internal deformation. Think of this as like a piece of jello. It can be squeezed or spring. It can, maybe it's not translating. Its center of mass is stationary. Maybe it's not rotating. It can still move by being crumpled, by being squashed. Okay, so we're going to discuss all three types of motion. So at the end of the class, you can describe fully how something's moving. Um, but it starts with just describing Rigid bodies, rigid means no deformation, no, com no stretching or compressing. So here's a rigid body. It doesn't squeeze. No rotation, just the whole thing translating, moving around like this. And to start, we're going to make it easy. We're going to do motion in one direction. So it can move to the left or to the right. And that's all we're going to let it do today. It can move to the left, it can move to the right. Okay, so the, the quantities we want to consider are displacement. Probably a new term. Displacement is how far something's moved. And it's a vector. It has a direction. Okay, so its direction is given by which direction it's moved. In our one-dimensional case, it's going to be to the right or to the left. When we start doing two and three-dimensional problems, it can be in x, y, z. Okay, so it's a vector, and we usually denote it as delta x. So this, this triangle we call delta. Right? It's also a Greek letter. If you have to write this in mastering physics, I believe that's what you write. And it's the change in an object's position. So if an object was at position 1, and then it ends up at position 2, the difference between those two positions is how much it moved. Okay, so we say that the displacement is the difference between its final, or its, its final position and its initial position when expressed as vectors. So you can see that we're going to start to use vector addition, vector subtraction here. And so for 1D problems, we'll either treat it as being forwards, which we'll call positive, or backwards, which we'll call negative. And then next week, we'll talk about two and three-dimensional cases, and then it'll be a, a vector with components in x, y, and z. Okay, So let's look at an example um, where we have a track. So. Let's say we've got two runners that are here at the starting line, and they're running around the track. Uh, one's going 200 meters, one's going 400 meters. So 200 meters means halfway around the track. 
And they usually start at the beginning of the curve, go around the curve, and then finish on a straightaway. So they're going to finish over here after going 200 meters. Uh, second runner, I guess that is the second runner. The first runner is going one full complete lap. So they're starting here, and they're going all the way around. Okay. And here are the dimensions of the track. The straightaways are 100 meters. The diameter of the circular sides is 64 meters. So we can ask, what are well, what is the distance that each runner runs, and what is the displacement of each? So distance. Distance is just the conventional, conventional term. There's no specific physics definition for what distance means. So how far, what distance does the 200 meter runner run? 200 meters. And the 400 meter runner runs 400 meters, okay? Displacement, though, is a little bit more sophisticated a term. Is the displacement of the 200 meter runner 200 meters? No. Why not? Yes? So first thing is, it only describes a distance. It doesn't describe a direction. So saying somebody runs 200 meters doesn't tell you which direction they ran. And displacement is a vector. It should have a direction. And so for someone starting right here and ending right there, which direction did they run? They ran up and to the left. Right? We, can, we can calculate exactly what angle that is, but it's, it's sort of up and to the left. So their displacement for the 200 meter runner is up and to the left. And what's the magnitude of their displacement? Is it 200 meters? That's how far they went. It's not. Why not? I heard something over here. Yeah, the, the end result, they started here and they ended up there, and all that matters is the distance between the start and end points. It doesn't matter that they took this path that traveled 200 meters. Bottom line is they ended up a certain distance away from where they started in a certain direction. Yeah? Yeah. Well, yeah, it is. And we're going to be a little bit more uh, quantitative about it, saying it's um, it's the vector. Let's use the definition. Delta x is, in this case, my final position. I'm calling x2. And my initial position, I'm calling x1. So whenever we're looking for a change in some quantity, we want the final quantity minus the initial quantity. And those are vectors. And so I can demonstrate graphically how this works. Let me pick a point as an origin, maybe the center of the track. If I'm in the center of the track, I could say the position of the starting line, x0, that's wrong. Position of the starting line is 
however many meters away in, in, in this direction. Right? And the, the finish line is given by the vector that points to the finish line. So x2 minus x0. First thing I want to ask is, what is minus x0? If positive x0 is a vector that points like that, minus x0 points in the opposite direction. And now I want to add that to x2. x2 plus minus x0. So I'll move that vector up here. Going from the origin, I go along x2, and then I go along minus x0, and I get this total distance. Which is my displacement. And on, on the diagram here, that's from the starting line to the finish line. That's, that's what the picture should look like. When we do these problems, we always want to start by organizing our information. Drawing diagrams is a good way to do that. Visioning what the answer should look like is a good way to do that. We know they're going up and to the left. And then we need to work out the numbers. If we want to say what the displacement is, we have some geometry that we can do. I can draw a triangle where this distance is 64 meters and this distance is 100 meters. And that's a right triangle, so I can find the hypotenuse of this from Pythagorean's theorem. That works out to 119 meters. That's how far they ended up from where they started. They may have run 200 meters, but they ended up 119 meters away. We can also find the direction. So I can call this the direction. So I can define the direction if I want based on any angle in this triangle, I can say that theta, I can say tangent of theta, is 100 meters over 64 meters. And that's going to work out to be 58 degrees. Which, by the way, doesn't match what I have in the slide. What did I do wrong? I switched something around. What's different? Okay, I switched those around and I got different numbers, but the answers are actually the same. Why are they? Why is 58 degrees the same as 32 degrees? Yeah. So this direction I described is 32 degrees north of east, meaning that should be north of west. There's west, 32 degrees north of that. 
how would I describe this direction as I've drawn it in the diagram? Maybe west of north. So I'm calculating a different angle. Okay, they both tell me the same direction. They're just measured from different starting points. Okay, so they're the same thing. I'm saying this direction, this is 32 degrees, or this direction, this is 58 degrees. Uh, what about runner two? Uh, runner two, is it the 400 meter runner? What was the displacement of the 400 meter runner who goes all the way around the track? Zero. It's displacement zero because his final position is the same as his starting position. So he may have run 400 meters, but his displacement is zero. Okay, that's displacement tells how the position of an object changes. We also often want to know how fast that's changing. So velocity is a term that tells us how fast the displacement is changing. The change in displacement per unit time. So velocity is going to have units of displacement, or it's going to have dimensions of displacement per unit time. What do we measure displacement in, in SI units? Displacement? Meters. Measure time in seconds, so velocity should be meters per second. If displacement has a direction, if a runner goes 58 degrees west of north, then their velocity is going to be 58 degrees west of north as well. When we talk about the rate of change of displacement, that also has a direction. Okay, so velocity is a vector. Whichever direction the displacement is, that's the direction that the velocity is over the time in which that displacement occurred. Okay, so over a given period of time, delta t, if we measure the displacement delta x, we can, see, we can say that the average velocity during that time is delta x over delta t. And if we want to measure the instantaneous velocity, let me just take the limit of this as delta t goes to, to 0, and we get the differential form. Let's say the velocity is dx dt, or it's the slope of the displacement versus time curve. So let's start with an example where we have the average velocity that we're calculating. So same situation as before. A 400-meter runner, a 200-meter runner. Uh, the 400-meter runner completes a lap in 50 seconds. What was their average velocity during that lap? Two meters per second? Eight meters per second. Okay. Any any descent out there? Any other answers that come to mind? What if I told you it's not eight meters per second? Who can come up with a reason why it's not eight meters per second? 
Uh, it has a direction associated with it. Which direction? The starting point is here. Where's the ending point? There. It's also there. So which direction did the runner go? How far did they go? What was their displacement? Zero. Their displacement was zero. What was their average velocity? Zero. Average velocity was zero. Meaning on average, they didn't go anywhere. Right? They may have been running very fast, but because they didn't get anywhere after 50 seconds, their average velocity was zero. Another way of saying it is, part of the time their, average velo their velocity was positive, when they're running to the right, and then when they're up here running to the left, their velocity is negative, and it all averages out to zero. Yes? So if you were asking about the speed, then it would be? Okay. So the speed is not zero. The speed was 8 meters per second. Okay. So speed is how fast something's moving. It's not a vector. The speed at which they're moving is 8 meters per second. And at, initially, it's 8 meters per second. It's 8 meters per second around the turn. It's 8 meters per second up here. It's always 8 meters per second. And because it's not a vector, it doesn't have a direction. It's not positive or negative. And so the, the time when they're running to the right doesn't cancel the time when they're running to the left. The speed is different than velocity. Okay. Speed is the uh, distance divided by time. Velocity is the displacement divided by time. So they're closely related, but a little bit different. Uh, what about the second runner who ran 200 meters? Start here. They run to here. And we know now that's 119 meters away. And we know the direction as well. It's written on the board over there. Um, if it takes them 20 seconds to do that lap, what was their speed, their average speed? Their average speed was 10 meters per second. Because right, they went 200 meters in 20 seconds. What was their average velocity? Mm. Yeah, it's something like, uh, it's 119 over 20 is the magnitude. So it's something like 6 meters per second. Let me, uh, let me refer back to this diagram. The distance that they ran was 119 meters, and the direction we found was 58 degrees, we'll call it, west of north. Okay, so if their displacement was 119 meters at 58 degrees west of north, Their velocity is that divided by the time it took them to do it. Twenty seconds. So what I do here is I divide the 119 by 20. That gives me a little bit less than six. I'll just call it six. I divide the meters by seconds. That gives me meters per second. So I know I'm dealing with a speed or velocity, and then have this direction. There's nothing to divide that by, so that stays the same. 
Okay, so there's some average velocity that I can calculate knowing the displacement. Okay, so yeah, it works out to 5.95 meters per second as the magnitude of the velocity and the direction is the same as that of the displacement. So that's how we use the average velocity. Sometimes we also talk about the instantaneous velocity. So let's say we had a plot of the position of an object plotted on the, it's labeled x, but it's the vertical axis. It's plotted as a function of time. So this is something that, let's see, it's going forward along x. At what point has it gone the furthest? At point Q, it's gone the furthest. At which point has it returned to its starting point? R. At which point has it gone the furthest in the opposite direction? Yeah. S. Okay, so that's what's going on. Uh, at which point is its speed the greatest? Mm. At Q, its position is not changing. The slope of this curve at Q is zero. Likewise at S. It looks to me like at R, the slope of this curve is the greatest. Remember the velocity is the slope of this curve. The speed is the magnitude of the velocity, so that's largest at point R. It's negative, so the velocity is in the negative direction. The speed is just always a positive value. It's always the magnitude of that. Okay, so the slope has the greatest value at R. Okay, so the third quantity we deal with is acceleration. So displacement, velocity, and acceleration. So just like velocity was the time rate of change of displacement, acceleration is the time rate of change of velocity. Acceleration tells you how fast the velocity is changing. So again, it's a vector. It has a direction. Because velocity has a direction, the change in velocity has a direction. And just like we had for velocity, we can say an average acceleration is a change in velocity over some finite time, where the instantaneous acceleration is the change in velocity with respect to time evaluated as a, as a derivative. Okay, so if we, we say sort of one, one step that's logical step that's missing from this slide, if we want to define the instantaneous acceleration, we can say it's time rate of change of velocity. And we can use the fact that the velocity is the time rate of change of the displacement. And so when you do two, two time derivatives like that, we get the second time derivative of displacement. Okay, so these definitions are important for understanding what these quantities mean, but they're also going to be very important for 
um, deriving some formulas that we're going to use a lot to determine how things move. Okay, so let's look at a slide again, or a, a curve again. And it's the same curve. So we're plotting the displacement of the object as a function of time. And at which one of these points did we say the, the, the speed was the greatest? At R. Uh, was the velocity positive or negative at R? Negative, because the slope is negative. It's going from positive to negative. What about point P? Is the velocity positive or negative there? Positive. It's positive. So at point Q, which is in between those, is the velocity changing to become more positive or more negative? It's becoming more negative. So velocity means slope. The slope initially is positive, it's upwards, and it's changing to become more negative. Okay. The change in velocity is the acceleration. Is the acceleration at point Q positive or negative? Mm. Let's go through this again. The velocity at P, is that positive or negative? Positive. positive. At point R, is it positive or negative? Negative. negative. So it's changing from positive to negative. Is that an increase or a decrease? It's a decrease. It's a negative change, meaning negative acceleration. The acceleration is the rate at which this slope is changing. It's going from positive over here to negative over there. That means a negative acceleration. Sometimes we call that a deceleration. So another way of looking at this, we have an object that's moving forwards. Right? That's what we started with. We said it was moving forwards along x. And then at point Q, it's no longer moving forwards. It starts to move backwards. So we had something that was moving forwards. It hit the brakes. It slowed down. It decelerated. You probably use that term when you talk about driving. It decelerated and started going backwards. What about point S? Acceleration positive or negative there? It's positive, yeah. The curve is it's curving up. It's curving up, so that's a positive acceleration. The velocity is negative over here. It's positive over there. So it's going from negative to positive. It's increasing. The velocity is increasing, means it's accelerating. Yes? I'm using the fact that velocity is equal to dx dt. Okay, so I have, I just plugged that in for velocity, that's a term in parentheses. And then I have the derivative of the derivative, which is d squared. They're both derivatives with respect to time, so I have dt squared in the denominator. This, from your, uh, probably from your calc course, you learn that this is called the curvature. This is the slope of the x versus t plot. This is the curvature. So we said the slope is positive here. The curvature is negative here. It's curving down. Here it's curving up. Is there a point where the acceleration is zero? Mm, what's zero at q? The velocity. The slope is zero. 
the slope is how fast the displacement is changing as a function of time. That's velocity. At r, the acceleration is zero. We can say that there's no curvature here. Yeah. Or we can say that above point r, the slope is this. Below point r, the slope is also that. The slope isn't changing as it passes through point r. it looks pretty yeah it looks like there's no acceleration at point P yeah okay so let's skip that and ask the question why do we care about acceleration why do we care about velocity um, if I say that what we really want to do is understand how things move around that probably means where is something at a certain time um, the reason we care about all this is because if we know the acceleration, we can calculate where something will be at a given time. And it turns out that acceleration is something that we often know. Um, acceleration is produced by force. When forces push on things, they make the things accelerate. The amount of force applied to an object is directly proportional to its acceleration. That's called Newton's second law. We'll cover that in chapter four. But what that means is it's, it's pretty easy to measure the forces acting on something. If you know the forces that act on something, then knowing its mass, you can find its acceleration. Knowing its acceleration, we'll see how you can calculate where it's going to be at, at various times. Or likewise, if you can measure how something's moving, once you determine the acceleration on it, you can figure out what the forces are. Determine, oh, is that a lethal force? If you have a crash test dummy, you see it accelerate in a crash. You can ask, was there a lethal force exerted on that crash test dummy? Would it be a problem for a person to be in that situation? Okay, so uh, forgive me for putting in a couple integral expressions. I know that this isn't uh, a level of math that's required for this course, but I want to put it in there just because um, if you're familiar with this, it will motivate the equations of motion. If you're not, don't worry about it. Um, but we can say, if we say the acceleration is the time rate of change of velocity, we can say the velocity is the integral of acceleration. And so the velocity is acceleration times time plus some constant. And if you like, you can take this expression here. You can uh, differentiate it with respect to time and show that it's equal to velocity. I'm not going to do that. If you don't understand this, that's fine. If you do, then you'll see why your uh, Calculus 2 class is useful. So likewise, if we know the velocity, we can integrate that with respect to time to get displacement. We can say the displacement is the integral of this expression. When we integrate that expression, we get this expression. So where are we going with all this? Uh, where we're going is we want to look at this example that we started with, the Mars Pathfinder. And knowing that the forces cause acceleration, we want to look at what forces are likely present on a spacecraft as it goes into the Martian atmosphere and figure out what type of acceleration it's going to have and what type of trajectory it's going to follow. We're going to do that next time, since we don't quite have time to get to it. But let me skip past that. Let me try to skip past that. My computer wants to play it before it will advance.
Okay, so here's what we had um, based on our expressions for velocity and, and acceleration. When we integrate them, we get an expression that says the velocity at a time t is equal to the acceleration at a t at during that time times the time over which it accelerated. This is how much the velocity changes in time t, plus however much the initial velocity was. And likewise, the, the displacement of an object is equal to wherever it started out, plus however far it moved due to its initial velocity, plus however far it moved due to the fact that its velocity was increasing if it had an acceleration on it. So these are expressions that relate position, velocity, acceleration, and time. And they're valid for constant acceleration. Okay. These, the derivation of these came from integrating some expressions and assuming that A was constant, constant acceleration. There's a lot of instances where acceleration is constant. If the force acting on something is constant, it has constant acceleration. So um, we can do a little manipulation. We'll go through and do that on the board next time um, of a couple different expressions for the velocity. This one and this one for the average velocity. And we'll get an expression that relates change in velocity to the acceleration and displacement. And we're not out of here yet. That will let us come up with equations, three equations, that will allow us to, given the velocity, determine how, how long it's taken an object to acquire that velocity, or how far the object has gone while acquiring that velocity. Or if we know its position, we can figure out how long it took to get there. Or if we know it's how long the object's been moving, we can figure out how fast it's going and how long it's taken to get there. Okay, so we learned some new terms today. Displacement, velocity, and acceleration. They're all vectors. Displacement's the change in position of an object. Velocity is how fast that's changing. Acceleration is how fast velocity is changing. So we'll use all these things next time to talk about freefall. And we'll do that Mars Pathfinder example. And uh, bring a piece of paper that you can draw on. We're going to try to work out what the trajectory of the Pathfinder would look like. So you'll need paper to work on that.